0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor.
1: Hello and welcome to this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm Andrea Schwartz, and today I have with me Calcedon President Mark Rushduni. But before I bring Mark into discussion, I just want to give a little background on the subject matter for today. Many things have happened in the last three months with sheltering in place, um, now with a lot of social disturbance. But one of the byproducts of schools being closed because of the COVID-19 situation is that a lot of parents got to experience having their children at home during school time and supervising and overseeing their education and so depending on where the source of your information comes from there are a lot of reports that said 40 percent of parents are considering homeschooling when schools reopen other things talk in terms about how parents are just frantic they can't wait for school to start they just had no idea how hard it was Well, in the midst of all this discussion, there has been a release of a law school professor's view that homeschooling is a threat to children. And so she's calling for a lot of regulation because, in essence, you can't rely on parents to do a good job because, in her view, they're not qualified. Of course, that begs the question... Who is qualified to make decisions for parents and their children? Well, this isn't the first time this issue has come about. Decades ago, there were threats against Christian education and Christian homeschooling. And one of the people who was in the forefront of helping to establish the right position of parents having control of their children's education was Calcedon President at the time, R.J. Rushduni who has since passed away, but his son, Mark, who's our guest today, has agreed to come on and share with us some of the circumstances, some of the preparation, and some of the reason why his father was effective in terms of the fight back in the 70s, 80s, etc. So welcome, Mark, and thanks for joining me.
0: Hi, Andrea. Good to be here.
1: Not claiming to be an expert yourself, you are well-versed in the activities that your father carried out and why he was called upon to be the person to help families and schools establish the fact that not only constitutionally, but under God, they had a responsibility to make these decisions. So I'll just sort of let you set the stage however you think would be most effective for our listeners.
0: Well, as you recall, homeschooling became a phenomenon very uh, unexpectedly. The Christian school movement had, it had begun with a a couple of denominations, including uh, uh, Lutherans who had a chain of day schools some years earlier. But the revival really came in the 60s and the 70s, and and Christian day schools began to proliferate. Christian day schools had some major problems. And I've often pointed out that one of the problems was that it was an immediate reaction to the problems perceived in public education. And so they immediately said, we can do a little bit better. But when they, thinking they could do better, they actually began to imitate the uh, model of the public schools, which is taxpayer-subsidized. So, economically, Christian schools were always difficult to maintain. And so, there was such an impetus behind Christian education, and yet there was this difficulty of making it affordable. Many people turned to homeschooling, and it became a very popular thing very unexpectedly. I know here in California, the, the Superintendent of Public Education statewide decided he was going to crack down on homeschooling in California, and he had no idea how big it was at the time, and in fact, he walked that back because he found out that it wasn't just Christians who were homeschooling. It was liberals, New Age thinkers, and such, so he got it from every side at that time. And he walked it back. I've always thought it's amusing. He later went to prison for corruption. But there was a, a sudden movement towards homeschooling, and it grew very quickly and very unexpectedly. So it began to be perceived as a problem by various authorities. And there were various efforts to limit it. As well, there was an increasing influence from the religious right that was not appreciated. You remember the old moral majority, and then Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980. And there was a great fear of the religious right. And so there were efforts to control not just homeschoolers, but Christian day schools. There was an effort to do this by any number of different means. And this happened very unexpectedly. It became serious in the Jimmy Carter administration. He was elected in 76, so he served from 77 to January of, of 81. That was encouraged from Washington, but a lot of that activity was on the state level. And again, some of it was zoning, saying you have to get permission for this. And obviously, they didn't really want to give that permission or a church cannot have a school during the week. It's only for Sunday activities. And there were all kinds of regulations and roadblocks. There was credentialing, approved textbooks, credentialing of teachers. Now, this happened very suddenly, and suddenly people were being charged. The church was being attacked by legal authorities For the first time in anyone's memories and Christian activity was being challenged and they needed expert uh, testimony in some of these court trials. And that's when my father's name came up. So
1: let me just kind of clarify for listeners. You said it was very unexpected. Well, something must have been brewing that so many people determined that they were going to remove their children from public school, which, of course, would reduce the revenues in the public schools. You can see how the teachers' unions wouldn't like it, etc. What do you think precipitated this? What was going on that people sort of woke up to the
0: idea, I don't want my child in a public school? Well, my father had been speaking on the subject uh, since the 1950s when he was a pastor in Santa Cruz. He Two of his early books... I believe his second and third books were on education, intellectual schizophrenia, and that was followed by the messianic character of American education. And the last of those was published, I believe, in 1963, but he had written it before that. And he had been lecturing on that throughout California and elsewhere, for some time. So he was encouraging Christian education. He was in favor of Christian education of, of any kind. He was pointing out the problems in uh, government schools and the fact that they were actually intended to change society and they were thoroughly humanistic. And their goal was to make a kind of citizen that was best suited for the country they saw going into the future. And that citizen was not controlled by the same ethics and philosophy as Christianity. And so an increasing amount of Christians saw this threat. They recognized it. A lot of Christian day schools in the 60s were started because people read my father's books. So that was kind of the impetus behind the Christian day school. Then I said the homeschooling came up unexpectedly That was just a new vehicle that people didn't see coming out uh, of this movement. But
1: interestingly enough, homeschooling was not new to the country. You go back to early America, and since you didn't have, quote-unquote, public schools, people were educated at home. They were taught to read and write and compute. And then some people would go on to higher education depending on where they were going in life, whether it was going to be a professional career as a teacher, an attorney, or as a physician, but most people were educated because they'd been taught and they continued to self-teach.
0: Right. And there's always been an element of what we call homeschooling. The term was became popular, and it became popular as an alternative to what then existed in the 60s and 70s. But it's always been around to some extent. In fact, back then, you could see ads in in uh, national magazines for what we would call homeschooling curriculums. It was learn at home. In fact, former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was actually homeschooled in one of those programs that was widely available. I believe it was called the Calvert School. I, I may have that name wrong.
1: No, you're right. The Calvert School pretty much served missionary families. And so if a missionary family was overseas or in a place where their children couldn't get and education like they would get at home, the Calvert School provided things by means of mail. So they'd have suggested curriculum, people would do it, submit their papers for grading, etc. So it's kind of remarkable when you think about it before the internet and before fax machines that people were actually doing this because they had a specific need.
0: Right. And it has a long history, uh, even in uh, early America. And that the fact is that many people were too remote, and they lived widely dispersed areas. And so schooling was often done on a very localized level, and the teacher may be uh, may not have been a professional. That came much much later with the push in the nineteenth century to make state credentialing of teachers and licensure a requirement.
1: So I think the biggest contribution that your father made, and then following in his steps, you'd say men like Sam Blumenfeld, had to do with the fact of identifying American public education as state education and that it was every bit as religious in its nature as Christianity but the reason it was a hard sell to talk about the religious nature is because most people thought of religion and they thought of Christianity and denominations and the Bible. But your father helped flesh out that what went on in public or state schools was indeed
0: religious. Right. It, that's one sense in which the ancient world uh, had a better grasp on religion is that it did not draw a sharp distinction between philosophy and religion. They saw that they were interrelated. It's only the modern world that believes that philosophy can be completely separated from religious ideas. But a philosophy is your basic assumption of life. What is ultimate? And so everyone, every philosophy, every belief system has this concept of ultimacy. And that is in effect the, the basis of your religion. And Christianity has a belief in ultimacy, and Christians have to act in terms of it. And so as the public schools became more and more secular, they were becoming more and more anti-Christian. And with the modern public school system and its control beginning in the teacher colleges by humanism, then they became increasingly anti-Christian. And we see that increasingly in the 20th century. And by the 60s, it was quite apparent. I think it some of the older generation of teachers that went back into education after they raised their families, they were raised and trained early in the 20th century. Many of them were retiring uh, back in the uh, 60s and so forth. So, in the 60s, you had a, a sudden shift, as with the rest of our culture, a sudden shift to the left, a hard shift to the left. The roots were there, the seeds were there of that shift, but the schools became decidedly more consistent with a humanistic philosophy and perspective in the 60s than they were probably prior to that. And more and more people were now becoming aware of what my father had had seen happening.
1: So it's kind of interesting. Your father starts talking about this, and I don't think if you looked at the numbers of books that actually sold, it would be commensurate with the influence he had. I know for years when I represented Calcedon at homeschooling conventions, people would come to our table, and very few people would even know the name R.J. Rushduni. And I would acquaint them with the fact that in actual fact, if you were going to look at the father or even the grandfather of the movement, because you could say it started with Christian day schools and then it moved on to homeschool, they didn't even understand the history of how the acceptance of homeschooling and how the pushback was able to be accomplished with various states trying to um, impose it. So, A common question I get today is, who's the R.J. Rushduni who's going to defend us now? This Harvard professor, I believe her name is Elizabeth Bortolet, she's talking about it as being dangerous, it should be regulated. So how did your father prepare to combat the attacks when he went and was brought forth as an expert witness?
0: Well, his preparation was really a lifetime of, of study, but the reason he was accepted as an expert witness isn't necessarily because of his expertise on the subject. It has to be more a little more official on that than to be accepted by a court. And to his advantage was the fact that he had degrees in education. He also had a lifetime teaching credential, and he had written books on the subject. In addition, he was allowed to speak on the religious aspect and the freedom of religion issue when the courts would allow it. They tried to keep that out, but he could speak on that because he was an ordained minister. So his background had primed him, but that's only what got him in the door of the court. And then once he was accepted by one court as an expert witness, other courts tended to defer to that status, and he was then called. And there was a time in the 80s when that's what he spent most of his time doing. He would travel here and there on various different issues, but it was all basically the attempt to, to quash the activities of the church in regarding to education or one ministry after another and to limit the activity of Christianity to liturgy and he was going to these court cases. He would sometimes come home just to turn around, get his clothes washed, and get a home cooked meal before he would head out again. And and sometimes he would actually arrive home one evening and then leave the next morning for another such uh, testimony. And they were they would harass him very regularly because one way of trying to avoid an expert witness that you don't want to testify is to try to get the court hearing rescheduled after your witness is already on the plane. And they did that a few times to him as well. So his basic training, though, his basic expertise came from his knowledge and his reading. It's hard to reproduce that lifetime of learning unless someone is willing to put in the time to go back and study the history of Christianity, the history of freedom of religion. And there's something my father did that many people fail to do is my father would not only read good books, he read the bad books. He read those he opposed. So he had read extensively in the educators. The same could be said of Sam Blumenfeld. Sam Blumenfeld would go into these boring Journalist, scholarly articles written by these progressive educators, and he would say, this is what they're saying to one another. This is what we need to pay attention to. And so sometimes you have to read the bad stuff to really be able to challenge a false idea. I can remember once after a worship service, someone from a local university, this was in Los Angeles, and it was a student was waiting outside with willing to confront him. And he started quoting a philosopher and my father started telling what that philosopher actually said. And he, my father had read the philosopher far more than he had. And so this is the, the, the the reason my father was able to confound hostile questioning on the witness stanza. Sometimes it was very nasty. They would, start by trying to discredit him and his belief and show that he was out of touch. An example I've often quoted is that, now this is about education, religious freedom, and they would start by asking him if he believed the world is only a few thousand years old. Then they asked him to affirm his understanding that most scientists in the world believe it's many, many millions of years old. And then they asked him, well, you're not even a scientist. And how is it you feel that you can disagree with all those scientists and not believe the world is millions of years old? And my father says, because I don't have that much faith. See, but they wanted to discredit him is the point. They wanted him to make make him look like he was someone who held just bigoted beliefs that could not be substantiated. And therefore, his opinions were of no real value. And that's common. And we see that done against Christians in general in today's world. They're marginalized and they tried to marginalize him, but he could answer their questions. And sometimes he could challenge the question as having a false historical premise. And that's what, in fact, happened in the Leeper case in Texas. They started by quizzing him on how much he really knew about Texas because they thought they were going to make Full out of him by saying here this Californian coming and he doesn't know a thing about us or Texas history. And my father began correcting his misstatements about Texas history. And Shelby Sharp, who is the attorney for the Christian schools, then said the judge was fascinated with his testimony.
1: So there's a great and, example, if I might interrupt, that's a great example of your father's confidence didn't come from anything other than he was standing on God's word and God's premises. And I think the takeaway is obviously we don't spend all our time looking for the next RJ Rush but by God's grace, his lectures, his books, his various articles have been preserved and people can become just as educated if they're willing to go beyond the headlines on a Facebook post or other things on social media and dig down because it sounds though, and I've studied the Leaper case, etc. It's that he found their inconsistencies and was able to correct them. And in many cases, it left people without any kind of response. And after the Leaper case, things backed off significantly. And unfortunately, I think that meant that a lot of people went to sleep and didn't say, well, we're homeschooling now or our children are Christian school. We're going to raise up the people who will be ready to be the expert witnesses.
0: Right. A legal victory is only good for so long when the culture itself is anti-Christian. We're seeing this today. the, the, the Christ, Our culture is sort of heading for this precipice and it's determined to, to reach it and to jump. And it's a little frightening at some of the things that are happening around us. And so the opposition to Christianity is becoming more and more virulent. But you, you asked the, the question... Where's the next uh, Rashtuni coming from? That I don't know. I'd like to point out a couple things, though. I do think that current generation of Christians has a lot more individuals who are keen to the fact that we are in a battle. So that there are many people ready to raise the alarm. It, It wasn't that way it was really only the the few people who were involved in a church that had its doors padlocked by the sheriff or the people who were given a, a cease and desist order for having a Christian school or who had their children taken. It was those people were aware, but many others weren't. I think that's less true today. So there are more people aware of the need to resist how they do it and what is, if someone is going to come forward, I don't know if we'll need another individual exactly like my father. We're going to need more people who are attorneys and people who are willing to fight. And I think those are emerging. They have emerged. They're going to continue to emerge as the battle lines become increasingly drawn. And it is a battle and it's something we have to fight for. But when you told me what this subject of this was going to be about, a couple of days ago, you mentioned that question: Where's the next Rushduni going to come from? And as soon as we hang up, we hung up. I, I thought of something that was appropriate. The prophet Zechariah, and who wrote the next to the last book in the Old Testament, had a series of visions of the future, and two of the shortest visions. They followed one another. And they comprise all of about four verses at the very end of Zechariah chapter one. And one vision was of four horns. Horns, everyone in the ancient world knew what horns represented. They represented power. Emperors often had horns on their thrones. There were horns on the altar in the temple because it represented God's power. So it was used by the Jews. It was used by the the pagans. You recall the famous uh, sculpture by Michelangelo of Moses? It looks odd because Moses is shown wearing having horns. Horns represented power. And this has continued throughout much of history in different ways. But horns always represent power. So there was this brief vision where there were four horns that would arise. But the next vision, which was equally as short, is that God would raise up four carpenters are called in the King James version. A lot of versions will say smiths as in a blacksmith or an artisan because who made these horns to represent power? It was artisans. So every time God was saying that every time threatening powers arise against his people, God will also raise up an artisan who is capable of filing those horns down cutting them off, destroying them, because it was a one of these smiths or carpenters or artisans that made the horns. God would provide someone to destroy them. And that's going to happen. We don't know how, we don't know when, but if you believe that evil is not going to be victorious, then all we have to do is face the battle and be willing to fight it and recognize that Ultimately, God is going to provide that that smith to destroy that horn of power. He's going to provide that artisan which can file it down or just cut it off entirely. And so this will happen. The next battle isn't going to look exactly like the battle in the 70s and 80s. And so we're not sure what's going to be needed even, much less who is going to be the person that fills that need.
1: But I think one thing that we can say is that the issues will remain the same. That if you break humanity into two groups, you have covenant keepers and you have covenant breakers. And without the law of God being the touchstone that says, are we being faithful or not? If you don't have that, it's hard to see what the defining issues are. So for example, most recently state, health agency said churches couldn't meet, people couldn't sing. They were going to limit how people worshiped God. We're moving into an area where could there be forced blood work done to find out if you carry the contagion of COVID-19, enforced vaccinations. I think the challenges are such that if people prepare themselves being and are standing on the rock, then we might find some surprising Smiths who come forward and either educate others who will be better credentialed, you might say, to go ahead and do the fight. Whether or not someone is being raised up as a physician now to combat the health myths and dictates that are coming out or people who in education or people in the law, There also can be people who convert, just like Paul the Apostle converted from being a very well-educated Pharisee to being a very well-educated apostle. But we've got to be willing to see the battle, as you said, and realize that it can be exciting to be on the Lord's side.
0: Yes, and sometimes the enemy kind of shoots their wad a little too soon. And that may be what's happening with this COVID shutdown. I can't see this happening again next year and having as much cooperation. My office window looks out over State Highway. It's just a two-lane State Highway. But at the end of March, it was largely dead. Very few cars going by. My wife and I said it was very nice when we got to the end of our driveway that we were actually able to, to go onto the driveway very easily and we didn't have to wait for a stream of cars from either direction clear because the traffic has increased quite a bit in, in over the years that we've lived here. Well, now traffic seems about normal. If you go into town, it's about normal. Even before things were opening up, there was been a, a real push here in California. Businesses said, we're going to open and within two days, the governor said, okay, you can reopen, but here's some rules to reopen. And they began the reopening process because he didn't want to be faced with a, an out-and-out out defiance of state authority. Churches also said the same thing. It says, we're going to meet, start meeting in June. So what happened before June? Churches can meet, but here's some conditions. And some churches are, are meeting with or without those conditions being met just as some businesses are largely violating the protocols. So what we see here is that that the state may have been overstepping their authority and really perhaps destroying their ability to do this in the future, because I think a, a lot of states have stepped forward and they said, this is our opportunity to exercise total control. And in the long run, that may backfire on them. There's going to be resistance on doing anything like this. But this caught people by surprise. The whole use of a health emergency did catch people by surprise. Next time there's a health emergency, real or not, I think people are going to very have a cynical attitude towards it.
1: And I think one of the things we can encourage people is not to feel you know something because you've read a headline. And one of the things that I always marveled about your dad, and you can see this in areas quite apart from education in his institutes, he will quote people who I would never want to read. And I'm grateful that he was willing to do it. But I hope we have people who are willing to become versed in the opposition so that they're able to bring a biblical world and life view to how to combat it. So in terms of how you educate children, homeschool, day school, let's not be afraid to educate them on what the opposition says because if you just try to shelter them, then you don't really prepare them for the battle.
0: Right, and it's going to be an ongoing battle, but that's the world we live in and that's the Christian faith. And your eschatology plays a huge part in this because if you believe in ultimate victory of the kingdom of God. You see each threatening step by the enemies of the kingdom of God is doomed to failure. And where is this going to go? Are we going into a dark age of statist totalitarianism? Or at some point, is there going to be pushback? Is it going to be like the battle of the bulge where the enemy makes this pushback but they didn't really have enough to back it up and it was eventually pushed back and it was their last gasp. Well, we don't know in the long run, sometimes when it looks really bad and when the allies were retreating in the battle of bulge, it was a rather scary thing, but ultimately that was pushed back and ultimately there'll be pushback and it's going to happen, whether it's in our lifetime or thereafter. But I think ultimately things are going to change, but ultimately nothing's going to change unless there's a change in the people. So we're fighting a defensive battle in some respects until there's an increase in the growth of Christian church and Christian awareness. And while we haven't seen a growth in the church, a tremendous growth in the church, I think there is an element of maturity in the American church now in some areas, in some communions, that did not exist 30, 40, 50 years ago at all. When my father started writing about public education, people thought he was unpatriotic because he was criticizing an American institution. Everyone had their children in public schools. So they were very offended that he would speak as though this was somehow unchristian. How did that make them look when they had their children in the public schools? They missed the point entirely.
1: That's true. You know, you were talking about pushback. I think the first area of pushback is in our own thinking. There are plenty of people who went through the public school system 30 years ago, 40 years ago, maybe some even 50 years ago, and they say, you know, it really wasn't so bad. Well, I I think it behooves everybody to get a good temperature reading on what goes on in the schools. One of the biggest boons of the closing of schools is since a lot of what goes on in those schools is indoctrination into a humanistic point of view the indoctrinators suddenly didn't have an audience and so even parents who noticed that their children were behaving better weren't talking back as much they didn't have as much you know resistance to respecting the authority of their parents i think a lot of people put together Why are they so different if, in fact, what's going on in this school was something that we should really applaud and support?
0: Right. I think it's overall a very wholesome thing that more people are outside of the public school system and people see that there are alternatives because if the public schools can educate remotely, then Christians can be educated remotely, too. And uh, so I think people are at, at least getting the idea you don't have to send kids off to an institution 12 years of their life to get an education. We do have to grow ourselves. And what people often don't realize is if they made it through the public school, how much better would they be if instead of that public school education they'd gotten some indoctrination in the Christian faith and Christian thought, they'd have been a lot more mature, and they probably wouldn't be taking that foolish stand now that the public schools aren't so bad. If they can't see that the public schools are bad, there's definitely something lacking in their Christian maturity.
1: And I think one of the byproducts of asking questions like this is to then ask the question, wait a minute, if it can be done remotely, if we can do it ourselves, if we just said, okay, forget about the books, kids, we'll find other ways so they they get other curriculums or they have the ability to watch people on YouTube or other things like that, they're gonna start asking the question, well, why are we supporting the public schools? Why are our property taxes going for this? Why are teachers union having such a profound influence? Why do these Harvard professors deem that they're qualified to tell us how to raise children when a lot of these people don't even have children of their own? So when somebody starts asking one question, it's sort of a cavalcade of other questions that then come from that. And I think that's how we'll persuade people, not by trying to shove our point of view down their throat, by asking the appropriate question and let them come to the conclusion. So instead of trying to feed people conclusions, help them learn how to think things through. Right. So you mentioned intellectual schizophrenia, you mentioned the messianic character of American education. What other titles would you recommend in terms of really understanding the American system?
0: Well, he wrote some books on American history, This Independent Republic, and The Nature of the American System. One aspect of particularly This Independent Republic that is important is the the localism that he notes there. And that he said the American system was based upon a very localized authority and the county was very important. It actually stemmed from the old feudal system, which was based upon a, a very an attempt to keep as much power local as possible. Because it was the feudal system arose really as a reaction to the centralism of the Roman Empire. It wasn't a perfect system, but it did try to prevent the, the rise of a powerful monarchy and that type of tyranny. And our emphasis on localism actually came out of that. And what we've had increasingly in, uh, since before our lifetimes, is the increasing centralization of government, in Washington, D.C., and the destruction of the Republican system of government where by the states and local authorities had authority. So we've transferred more and more power to Washington and we're suffering because of it.
1: Right. And I would also recommend Sam Blumenfeld's books on religion and education and um, the other books he wrote in terms of the NEA being the Trojan horse that brings in all sorts of other things. And then the for people who say, okay, 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 I get it, I get it. How would I get started? Two of his books, How to Tutor and Alpha Phonics, really lay out the groundwork that people can read the book and start teaching. Because most people don't realize that it's not how much you have in years of education that allow you to teach somebody something if you know how to do it you can teach it but sam Blumensfeld's book said okay i'll give you some help this is how you would do it because most education is really teaching someone how to teach themselves
0: right and, and those are good resources alpha phonics is basically a, a complete curriculum to teach a child how to read and the how to tutor is really training the, the the a person to how to do that and and why. So, in other words, why are we teaching phonics instead of look say? And it, it goes a little more uh, of that. And uh, so, with those two books, How to Tutor and Alpha Phonics, you could teach a child to read. And one of the things that public educators do not like is they do not like getting children coming to public schools who know how to read. And the reason they don't like that is because someone who reads is going to be an independent thinker. And sometimes they react in a way, I know one child who because of a custody dispute, began in a Christian, small Christian school and learned how to read, went to a public school and I believe first grade knowing how to read and the other children didn't know how to read, she was basically put off in a corner and ignored because she was too far advanced for the others. And she forgot much of her, what she had learned. They, they virtually ignored her because she was too advanced and they wanted the other children to try to catch up to her. And so they got nothing and they wouldn't advance her to where she was academically because of their belief that, no, they have to be in the correct grade level through all 12 uh, levels of our education or 13, if you include kindergarten. And basically they're saying we have to have them for 13 years and they cannot advance. What one room schoolhouses did is as fast as you could advance, you were advanced. So you could graduate from your grammar school, let's say, two, three, four years earlier than others because you were advanced. If you were particularly advanced, you might be asked to help tutor other children. And so then you learned how to teach. And that's how these one or two or four room schoolhouses, if you were in a much larger community, could get so much done is because the advanced students would drill the younger students on the basics. That also required a level, a a behavior level of those students and an expectation that they could, in fact, supervise small children and do a good job of it. And they did.
1: Right. Which is pretty much what happens in large homeschooling families. You have older siblings teaching younger siblings. And so there's a lot of myths that need to be dispelled. And one of them is that you must learn at the same level of people who are your age, Which just isn't true. You look at a lot of marriages today, and there are people who are five, ten years apart from each other in age, and they have a very good marriage. So, this whole age thing is a carryover from that Prussian system that said there's such a thing as a first grader, a second grader, a third grader. Well, there is, if that's how you categorize them, but if you categorize someone in terms of what he or she knows and what he or she is capable of doing, then that's a whole different ballgame.
0: Yes, the, the pu- public school has has really destroyed America more than we realize. It has. It was successful in creating the kind of citizen that it wanted, and that is a citizen that would be uniform. Have you ever noticed periodically the public schools will parade their students opposition to this or this some social cause and they all parrot the same attitude as if to see see the children know that this is the correct position and all they're doing is parroting they're, they're showing that they've been taught to believe this or that once when I was in school I tried starting a diary somebody gave me a diary and so I tried writing it years later I, I came up with it I didn't keep with it for too very long, but I was embarrassed the extent to which I was repeating impressions that had been given me at school. I was parroting those ideas, and that was even in a Christian school. It wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just that I was being controlled by what they thought was important, and that was ending up in my diary. So, I tossed it because it was embarrassing the extent to which I wasn't really even thinking at the time, I was parroting their thought.
1: Well, one of the things I love to do when I have a group of students together, and I did this when I was homeschooling and I had groups of homeschoolers, or now that I am affiliated with a Christian school, I asked them the question, is it okay to disagree with me? And sometimes the look on their faces, like they're so afraid. I said, well, okay, is it okay to disagree with me? What if I told you, that all your hair was green. And they'd laugh and they go, well, it's not green. I said, so then you could say that you didn't have to agree with me. So how would you, in a respectful way, disagree with me? Well, that's not anything that most schools want to hear, but yet that's what we should be doing because an educated person is a person who has knowledge but has the discernment and the ability to understand when things are a particular way as opposed to another. So I really think there's. this is an area that Christians should really focus on. If we want to see people like an R.J. Rushdooney emerge, or many of them, they have to be able to know how to think, and they need to know what their opposition thinks.
0: And that's why we keep publishing my father's books, because they, they're still speaking to... The needs to which they were originally addressed, because the modern church has still not addressed a lot of these issues, and it's going to have to at some point, and so we have to keep these issues alive, because they continue to be important, not just still important, but they're more important than ever, because the church has to face some of these issues that, to this point, to a large extent, it hasn't been willing to address. And eventually, I think that is going to happen. And a lot has to happen before that. And ultimately, a lot of that is going to come because of the moving of the Holy Spirit. All we can do is do what we can. And ultimately, that moving of the Spirit is going to take place. Things will happen. And it's surprising sometimes how fast things can happen and how fast things can change. We know that in the political, and that even on the human level, many people didn't believe that the Soviet Union could collapse because in our minds, we were raised to believe that the threat to uh, all of humanity and the threat to all of future history was the Soviet Union. And when it collapsed, a lot of people didn't believe it was really happening. They thought it was a trick, trying to lull the West into complacency. Uh, somehow. and there was real debate as about whether the Soviet Union was really dissolving or not. We couldn't see what was happening because we feared them so much we had overstated the threat they really were to history.
1: And I think that's something that people can take a lesson from. Because it looks like these big pronouncements coming from county health people or governors, mayors, senators, congressmen. And we have to realize that God has given us jurisdiction over ourselves and our families and our churches. And at the point at which we are armed with the responses and the correct apologetic that says no, because the word of God says this, we'll find ourselves... With more victories than maybe a lot of people anticipate. I think so. All right. Well, Mark, thank you. Thanks for the history. Thanks for your insight on current events. And uh, listeners, as always, if you have comments about this podcast or ideas for future subject matter, please contact us through our email, out of the question podcast at gmail.com.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.